Welcome back to the Real Life Theology Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Whether it's your first time or your 10th or your 100th time, we're just glad you're here. In this episode, Tina Wilson dives into what it looks like to step into scripture. She has a new book that's come out, and we actually have a whole nother podcast on our channel called Step Into Scripture that revolves all around Tina and her co-host Stacy walking through a lot of the questions and chapters in her new book, Step Into Scripture. So there's more information today that is from our track session for 2023 that we hope will enrich your ministry, bless you, and you'll enjoy. Okay, we're going to get started And I'm going to try to talk fast, maybe leave some things out because we're a little bit behind schedule and I don't want to talk the whole time. I want to have some time for Q&A at the end. Um, Let me introduce myself to you real quick. My name is Tina Wilson. I'm a pastor's wife, mom of seven from South Carolina. I'll show you my family here. Um, We've got, uh, if you're doing the math, six girls, just one little boy and a bulldog named Kane. Um, So my husband and I have committed to serving Jesus as church planters. Um, I love teaching the Bible and writing about the Bible, and something I'm really passionate about is walking with people through the whole Bible from beginning to end, and that's what we're going to be talking about in here today, stepping into Scripture and doing that by committing ourselves to reading the entire Bible. Now, lots of people have lots of reasons why this isn't necessarily something they want to commit to or not something that they think is necessary to do to understand the Word of God. So I want to just give you a quick testimony about how I got here, how I became passionate about this thing. When I was a senior in high school, I started dating a pastor's son, and um, he's now my husband and my pastor. But when I started dating him, he started to challenge some of my convictions and beliefs. And he was asking me to show me uh, substantiation for some of my convictions using the Word of God, using Scripture. And when he first started to question me in this way, why do you believe that? Where did you get that in the Bible? I initially responded in a lot of arrogance because I had been raised in church and I had gone to Sunday school and to youth group and I even went to Christian high school. And so I was sure that I knew the Bible. But when he tried to get me to sit down with him around an open Bible and actually talk about these spiritual convictions, I quickly realized how ill-equipped I was. Now, I could quote Psalm 23 and Romans 10, 9 and 10 and Titus 2, 11 through 14 and Revelation 3, 20, but I could not tell you who wrote it, who it was written to, what the context was. I didn't know anything even about the surrounding verses beyond what I could quote. And if any of you all were raised in an Abeka Christian school curriculum, you can probably quote those same verses also. So my boyfriend, husband now, boyfriend at the time, challenged me to just read the book of Acts. He said, why don't you sit down and just read through that book to gain a better understanding of how you come to Christ and what his church is supposed to look like. And so I did it and I was blown away it knocked the arrogance right out of me that thought I was biblically literate. And and I could not believe how much I found in the book of Acts that I never knew was there before because I was certain I'd taken a class on Paul's missionary journeys, right? And that's what the whole book of Acts is. In fact, there was so much more in there. And so I quickly realized I personally had not ever read the Bible for myself. And I didn't have any kind of personal Uh, foundation of biblical knowledge beyond just disjointed verses here and there um, that I had read, you know, when I I needed to meet an immediate need, fill an immediate hole. And, And I might have even read an entire book if it was short enough that I could sit and read it in one setting. But outside of that, 
I really didn't know the Bible and I was not ready to have any kind of spiritual discussion with any depth at all. Now, I could regurgitate a lot of catchphrases that I had learned through the years from church culture and the thing that really blew me away is those weren't even in the Bible when I started to read it. So in truth, I just didn't know the Bible. And, and I don't mean that to say that the church, school, anything that I grew up in led me wrong intentionally, but I do think that this becomes a problem that we take in so much secondhand biblical teaching instead of going directly to the source ourselves. And often, I think some of the spiritual leaders that people are relying on to be fed their spiritual truth, even those people may not be going directly to the source, but may be relying more heavily on other people's commentaries about Scripture. And this perpetuates generations of biblical ignorance. And that's a huge problem. And that's the life that I was living and living it arrogantly, thinking I knew something about the Bible. So I read the book of Acts, gained a fuller understanding of Christ and His church and His commission. And then at 18 years old, um, I was ready to truly commit my life to Christ. I was baptized for the remission of my sins to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because that's what the Bible said. I'd never heard it before, but it was in there. And then I went away from my freshman year of college. Now, here I am living on a secular campus as a brand new believer, uh, far away from home. And that was a very challenging space for me to live a holy life. I didn't have a solid church community. And so the only source of comfort and accountability I found in that year of my life was the Bible. I would just sit in my dorm room and read the Bible because now I had realized I had so much to learn and so far to grow. Once that arrogance is taken away and you learn how much goodness there is in there that you have space to absorb, then you want it. My roommate uh, would go out and party and I would sit in my room and read the Bible. She was a professing Christian also and she was even frustrated. She goes, Tina, this is not what Christianity is about, is sitting in your dorm room and reading the Bible all the time. And she was right, albeit for the wrong reasons. Um, but, <laughs> but I was just so in love with how I was learning to know God more intimately and my life was changing and and it was like the Holy Spirit's presence was just tangible in my life. That's the only way that I know to explain that. And so this is now something that through the years I've done again and again, and I've become really passionate about reading the whole Bible. I do this together with women in my church. We've read in 365 days, 180 days, 90 days, do not recommend. Um, just last Friday, we finished a year-long, or I'm sorry, 180-day plan that we began last fall after our women's conference. And right now I'm in the book of Exodus and a chronological plan I'm doing with a small group. So this is something that has just become a recurring spiritual discipline in my life. And here's what's so incredible about it is I'm still not as sure of my biblical knowledge at 39, having read it through a dozen or more times. I'm still not as sure as I was at 18 when I didn't know anything about it. But I had just listened to people talk about it because Here's what I find is no matter how many times I read it again and again, I always learn something new. I'm always drawn closer to God. I understand His character more fully. And I think that's what the Hebrew writer meant when he said in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So we're going to talk about stepping into Scripture and I hope that you won't check out on me because this answer just sounds too simple. 
that if you want to step into scripture, you want to become biblically literate, you want to grow in God's word, here's what it looks like. Open the thing and read it. The whole thing, start in Genesis and read it to Revelation. And often I think people think that answer is too simple. Either it's too simple or it's just too long. People want a YouTube video. They want a shortcut to biblical literacy. But I think that the real answer is reading it daily, intentionally, and strategically from beginning to end. Now, another reason I think this answer feels like an oversimplification is because it's just not polished enough, right? Because we live in the age of Instagram where biblical literacy has become more of an aesthetic than a spiritual discipline. So who has seen the girl? She's on Instagram. She's sitting on her porch. She's looking out over a dewy field as the sun is rising. She's holding a cup of coffee. The cup is the perfect uh, color that makes the picture pop. There's latte art on the top, obviously. Between her matte nails, she's gripping her overpriced Bible journaling pen, and she is doodling deep truths of the faith in the margin of the Bible. And then that, that's what we start thinking this has to look like, right? Listen, let me just free you from that. I'm going to be honest with you. If I started drawing in my Bible, I would never have time to read it. Okay, And I would always feel deficient because I am both not artistic and a perfectionist. So my drawings in the margins would never look good enough for me to think I had actually accomplished anything. This is what this can look like. It doesn't have to look like that. What it looks like for me right now is in the morning when I get in the shower, I turn on my Bible app, I set the phone on the shower shelf, it reads out loud to me. When I get out and start to brush my teeth, the phone follows me and sits on my bathroom counter and continues to read the Bible out loud to me. The last read-through that I went through, it happened on the elliptical machine at the gym. I would put my AirPods in, put the phone on the shelf, let it read the Bible. It will scroll for you so you can listen and look. I'm definitely ADD to some extent, so I need it coming at me in all the directions. There have been several times in my life when it looked like keeping an open Bible on my bed or nightstand, and every time I got up or sat down to nurse a baby, we read the Bible while we do that. What it's looked like in my life for years is gathering all my kids um, in the morning when they were younger. Now that they make their own schedules, it's often at night before everyone goes to bed, and everyone takes turn reading a chapter of the Bible. We homeschool. Our state requires 180 days of school, so we count 180 days of school with a 180-day Bible reading plan. So it can look like any of those things. It doesn't have to be this aesthetic that, uh, that we need to post on Instagram for it to be valid. It's just reading the Bible. And, and if you object to that, because I think, again, it's just too simple or it's too long of an answer, we come up with all these objections. I've been super surprised at the number of objections I've heard from people as to why I don't need to, don't have to, don't want to just do it that way. Just open the Bible in the book of Genesis and read it to the very end. And so I do want to tell you um, that I have a podcast. I started uh, a while back. I polled a, a group of about 900 women in my church, and I said, hey, tell me, what reason have you heard or used as to why this is not the answer? I don't necessarily need to read the whole Bible. And so uh, in season one of this podcast, I'm just dispelling every one of those objections using scripture, right? And, uh, and I want to just tell you some that we've taken on that I've heard from women in my own church where reading the Bible beginning to end is an ongoing spiritual discipline that we're constantly committed to. This is the noise even they're having to overcome to commit themselves to it. It's an impossible feat to read and understand the whole thing. That's impossible. Ever felt that way? 
Um, I don't have time to read it. I prefer topical studies over just opening the Bible and reading. I want to do my study that I ordered in a box instead. Um, it feels monotonous or irrelevant. What the heck do the begats have to do with me, right? Um, I've had people tell me it was written by man. It's filled with contradictions. I've read it already. Why would I need to read it again? I need to know the important stuff first. Then I'll commit myself to reading the whole thing. Or here's a huge one. I live under the new covenant. Why in the world do I need to read the Old Testament? So those are all objections that I hear even in my own fellowship of women. And if any of those resonates with you, I would encourage you to check out that podcast and I'll share with you at the end how you can access that. But I believe firmly that a continual commitment to reading God's whole word, not just once, but reading it and do it again and again and again is the best and maybe only way to truly grasp the character of God, to know who he is, and also to recognize the centrality, the importance of Christ in the meta narrative of Scripture. Now, Renew has a great book about the meta narrative of Scripture. That's the overarching story. It's the thing that Scripture is about. It's the thing about Scripture that when you connect with it personally, really changes your life because all of a sudden you're wooed into a love or uh, pulled even deeper into an understanding of how much God loves you. Because even though the Bible is, is divided into 66 books, right? It's really just one story. So what is the Bible? If someone asks you that, here's what it is. It's God's story, His plan for the restoration of all mankind for all eternity. It's his story about how he loves us so much that he has made everything in humanity from the moment Adam and Eve broke fellowship with him in the garden revolve around one thing, and it's bringing us back into a perfect love relationship with him, unhindered by anything. And when you understand that kind of love that would pursue humanity through the millennia for one reason, I just want to be with you. There's just nothing like it, and there's no other way to connect with it besides getting it by committing yourself to reading the whole thing. Me telling you about it won't do it for you, right? I cannot say anything to you in this workshop setting that is going to be better than what you are going to read for yourself in Scripture. But to make it a little more digestible, because that's a big thing to bite off, it is. The Bible is a big book. It's got about uh, a quarter of a, or three quarters of a million words in it. So 750,000 words. Um, I want to just show you a method that, that I've utilized, breaking it down into four quarters of Bible study. This is how I step into Scripture, and this is the premise um, of a book that I'll have coming out next month that shows you how to do that very thing. So when we step into Scripture and we're ready to connect with this meta narrative, so that we can get to know the character and nature of God and recognize the centrality of Christ, the first section we come to in Scripture is shadows. So if you're reading a, a year-long Bible reading plan, my personal favorite way to read the Bible is a year-long chronological reading plan. Here's how easy this is. That's 15 minutes a day. You read it in one year, you're going to read for 15 minutes a day. All right? And if you go with, with that, days 1 through 90, the first quarter of the year that you're reading, you're going to be in a section that I'll call shadows. And this takes you from the biblical man, Adam, to the biblical woman, Deborah. So this beginning section of Scripture, this is such a powerful piece of this meta-narrative, is characterized by shadows. Men like Adam and Moses, 
who were shadows of a Messiah who was going to come. And then you read these narrative accounts that although they're literal stories of events that actually occurred, they're also shadows of a Messiah who's to come, like when we read the story of the Passover, right? It points us toward a day when God's wrath was going to pass over those who were covered by the blood of the Lamb. We also learn in this first section of Scripture called Shadows that God's laws, His sacrifices, His festivals, and His commandments are all pointing us toward realities that were to come in Christ. And I want to just give you an example of, of one, one of these things in the Old Testament uh, Shadows section in this first 90 days of reading. And it comes when we come to the book of Joshua. So if you're reading through chronologically, by the time you get to Joshua, something awesome has happened. Every one of the uh, promises that God has made to the family of Abraham has found fulfillment at that point. God makes lots of promises throughout Scripture. He makes them to this particular nation, Israel. But they're also foreshadowing promises that we sit in today. So you come to the book of Joshua, commit yourself to reading, you make it there. So you've conquered Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, which is not where your reading plan goes to die, okay? <laughs> Deuteronomy, Numbers, you're in Joshua. And here's what has happened. By that point, God has delivered the Israelites from bondage like He promised. He's multiplied their number, made them into a great nation like He promised. He has dwelt among them, albeit in the tabernacle because they acted all stupid with this golden calf, right? But just like He promised, He set them apart as His own special people, just like He promised. He's given them victory in conquest as they're coming into Canaan, just like He promised. And He's now granting them rest in that inheritance, just like He promised, right? So we don't have the Davidic covenant yet with the promise of an eternal king, but all of these promises initially made to this family of Abraham have been fulfilled, but they're all shadows. They, they're real, they literally happen, they're actual events, but they're shadows of what God promises to us. Because look then, when we read the whole Bible and connect the meta narrative, here's what we find out when we get to the New Testament. That God set us free from bondage, just like He did the Israelites, but it was bondage to sin. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We find that he continues to multiply the number of his people. He made Israel into a great nation. It was just a shadow of what he was going to do for us. Acts 5.14 says, Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number as this new kingdom multiplies. He dwells among us just like he dwelt among them in the tabernacle. John 14.23, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me, will obey my teaching, my Father will love them and will come and make their home with them. He tabernacles with us now, John says. He set us apart as His own special people, just like He did the Israelites in this shadow. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. He's also given us victory in expanding His territory, a new covenant conquest that no longer looks like moving into Canaan and killing off enemy nations, but it does look like uh, killing off sin by going into all the world and teaching the gospel and baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? It's still an expanding kingdom. And then He even promises us the rest in our inheritance that He fulfilled to Old Covenant Israel. Revelation 14, 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, 
Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them. See, all these promises to Israel in the new covenant are just shadows of realities for us. And that's just some of the theological depth that we get from reading just up to the book of Joshua, where honestly, most people start to read the Bible and they don't even make it through that section because they're just thrown off the road when they get to Leviticus, which is also full of shadows. But when we start to recognize that all of those shadows are pointing toward realities for every one of us, now we want to go through it because now this is about how much God loves me. So that's just the first section there. And I want to tack this verse on to the end. Paul put it like this when he referred to God's promises that are fulfilled to us in Christ, all these shadows that have now become our reality. In 2 Corinthians 1, 18 and 20, he says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of the Father. See, God or Jesus is God's yes to all of these shadows that we're introduced to in the beginning of the Bible, and they're fulfilled in Christ. And then our response of amen brings glory to God as we agree with these promises and we accept these promises. So that's just section one. The next section of scripture we come to as we step through the Bible, we're going to call signposts. And this is days 91 to 181 if you're reading on a 365-day plan. It takes us from the biblical man Gideon to the biblical man Jehoshaphat. So this section of scripture takes us through judges and kings who are signposts that point us to Jesus. They point us ahead toward an ultimate deliverer who is going to save us from our deepest enemies. The king's point is toward a coming king who's going to bring an expanding kingdom of love and of holiness. And this section of scripture devotes a lot of time to one specific king, King David, whose reign was such a signpost pointing us toward the coming Messiah that Jesus himself would be known as the son of David. So what's amazing about this section of signpost is that as imperfect as all of these uh, leaders were, right? Because you can get bogged down in this section when you see just failure after failure. It's kind of depressing. But they achieve their purpose because they demonstrate to us that we need a perfect Messiah, that there is never any man, king or judge, who is going to be able to fit this bill. And I want to just give you an example of how this can be very helpful to our reading, recognizing these sections when we come to signpost in the life of Samson. Has anybody ever read the biblical account of Samson? So when you first do that, if you grew up in Sunday school, you are very sad and very disappointed. And if you're a woman, you're probably ticked off, right? Because he's a jerk. Um, I really struggled for a long time with him being in the roll call of faith. He's a difficult character. Um, But we recognize Samson as a signpost in this section of Scripture who God is still using to advance his plan. Proverbs 19.21 does a good job with this. Many are the plans of a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. That will preach. Um, So God, although he gave Samson's parents very specific instructions about how they were to raise him, Right, He broke every single piece of this Nazarite vow. He drank alcohol, he came into contact with dead bodies, and he allowed his head to be shaved. And yet, we find God using every one of Samson's missteps 
to accomplish his purpose, which was the deliverance of his people from their enemy, the Philistines. Um, he even worked through Samson's assimilation into the pagan culture when he married a Philistine wife, right? Because, okay, the guy's a raging chauvinist, and he essentially leaves his wife at the altar. This Philistine woman who he goes to marry calls her his heifer. I just can't even with him. Um, <laughs> and so she's given to another man in marriage. And if you know the story, in this fallout, Samson then kills the Philistines, torches their fields, they send out an army to retaliate. They camp at Judah. And this prompted the people of Judah to then hand Samson over to them. That's important. And although handing him over didn't work uh, because Samson now struck down a thousand Philistines that were sent to capture him, it gives us a snapshot um, not only of the coming deliverer, but the need for the deliverer because of how far Israel had fallen at this point. Judges records uh, what happens when generations fail to disciple down and proclaim the truths of God to the next generation, which is what we're all commanded to do in Psalms. And so in, they, they fall into this cycle of sin, and it's usually idolatry. And here's what it looks like. They would sin, then they would be oppressed by an enemy, then they would repent, then they would be delivered by a judge, and then they would experience a time of peace. And as they experienced a time of peace, they would again turn to sin and the cycle would begin again. But every time the cycle began again, they fell further and further away. And so through these cycles, the Israelites earlier in the book during these cycles would not even have dwelt uh, peacefully under oppression from the Philistines or from any foreign enemy. But by the time Samson was born, they had failed to disciple down and it had been so long since anyone had even stood boldly on the side of the Lord that... Uh, Oppression was just a part of their lives. They didn't even care about that going on. But even that messiness is a signpost in this section of Scripture that's pointing us toward the gospel. Okay, so here's how, right? Just like uh, Jesus, who was miraculously born, Samson's mother was barren. His, uh, his coming was announced by an angel. Just like Samson, Jesus was rejected by the people who he came to deliver. And just like Samson, he was handed over uh, to his enemy by the people who he came to save. And maybe the most uh, striking piece of this is just like Samson, uh, Jesus gave his life to deliver the people. Now, the motive was certainly different. Samson was seeking revenge and Jesus was seeking reconciliation. But do you see how even these difficult Old Testament characters, when we start to read the entire Bible and catch the meta-narrative, serve as signposts that are pointing us toward Jesus. And we find that all through that section of Scripture. The next part we come to as we're reading chronologically is called Sounds. And this is, if you're reading 365 days, this is going to be day 182 to day 273. And it takes us from Obadiah to Malachi. So in this section of Scripture, it focuses on the messages of the Jewish prophets that God gave to the people. Now, because the messages that we read through this section all originated from God, it's filled with phrases like, this is what the Lord says, or hear the word of the Lord. And the sounds that we hear in this sound section are both sounds of judgment against those who are remaining unrepentant for their sin, but also sounds of comfort for those who are looking forward to the coming Messiah. 
The most important sound that we hear from the Jewish prophets through this section of Scripture is a prediction of a time when not just Israel, but all nations were going to have the ability to come to God and be at peace with the Lord. And that's a reconciliation that would only be accomplished in Christ. And one of the best places, examples that we can see uh, this sound in this section of Scripture is in the book of Obadiah. So on its face, this book is a prophecy against the Edomites. And the Edomites trace their ancestry all the way to, the, to back to Genesis. So when you get there, you're remembering, oh, this is where those guys came from. They descended from Esau. He was the grandson of Abraham, uh, the son of Isaac. He's the one who exchanged his birthright with his brother Jacob when he was hungry. And so Edom was a kingdom that was situated east of the Jordan. And this was a historic enemy of Israel and Judah. And just like they had a shared ancestry, they also had a shared accountability. A huge thing you learn about the meta narrative as you commit yourself to reading the whole thing is it's not just the story of Israel going on in the Old Testament. It's the story of how God loved everyone in the world so much. And so here Obadiah calls them to that accountability. Obadiah 1.3, he says to Edom, the pride of your heart has deceived you. They were prideful because they believed, Edom believed that they were in a secure position and so they violently oppressed others and they gloated over the fall of Israel when Israel was conquered by Assyria, which you read in the Old Testament. So Obadiah was going to be judged for their sin and that's what, or Edom is going to be judged for their sin and that's what Obadiah is announcing to them. But it's important to recognize here when you come to this sounds section that Obadiah is also announcing that everyone is going to be judged for their sin. He says in 1.15, The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will be returned on your own head. So that, that language, the day of the Lord, is something we recognize throughout Scripture as judgment language, and it describes a punishment that God is going to deliver, to deliver as the ultimate consequence for sin. Here's how he says it in verse 16. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But again, this is just a signpost that's pointing us toward a future reality because when we get to the book of Revelation, we see judgment in the day of the Lord described in that exact same way for all the enemies of God. Revelation 14.10, They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And yet, with that harsh judgment from Obadiah to Revelation, there's still a promise and there's still hope. And that's what this signpost is pointing us toward more than anything. He says in verse 17, but on Mount Zion will be deliverance. Here's what we get from these signposts through this section of Scripture is that although we can be under imminent judgment, consigned to drink the cup of God's wrath described in both of these books, Old Testament and New Testament, we are still invited to become children of God. And eventually, what Obadiah points us toward as a signpost is only one kingdom is going to be left standing, and it's going to be the kingdom of our victorious Jesus. He says in verse 21, Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the hills of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So Zion is historically used to refer to Jerusalem, but we come to the New Testament and the connection here 
is that it's also used to describe the heavenly kingdom. The Hebrew writer puts it like this in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So that is a beautiful way that we find this sound of uh, prophets pointing us toward Christ in this third section of Scripture, proclaiming a coming judgment for the enemies of God, but also a coming restoration that's available to all nations. All nations will be judged for rejecting the Savior, but all nations are invited to be children of God. And the fourth and final section, when you're reading through chronologically, just like this, we come to, we're going to call it source. And it's day 274 to 375, or 365, and it takes us from Zechariah to King Jesus. So these final steps, as you're stepping through Scripture, learning the character of God, connecting with the centrality of Christ, and understanding the meta-narrative of how much God loved you and what all He's done to reconcile with you, we find here the shining source that all the shadows in section 1 depicted, the destination to which all the signposts in section 2 pointed, and the crescendo to which all the prophetic sounds in section 3 were building. Luke 2, 7, And she gave birth to a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room for them in the inn. And when you have read all of the Old Testament before you get to the New Testament, this whole thing just hits differently because everything, sounds, signposts, shadows have been building to this climactic moment. And then the arrival of Christ in the Gospels is anticlimactic because God loved us so much that he was meeting us right where we were, right? Jesus is born to a low-income family in Roman-occupied Israel. He drinks from common wells. He walks dirt streets. Hebrews 2.11 put it pretty profoundly. Jesus is not ashamed to call, him, call them brothers. So this fourth section tells the incomparably beautiful story of how the Son of God became like us so that we can become sons and daughters of God and he can make his home here with us on earth and we can be at home with him forever in eternity in heaven. Uh, a very powerful expression of this source section is in the book of Hebrews. When people use that objection with me of why do I need to read the Old Testament when I live under the new covenant, my response is always one word, Hebrews. Open the book of Hebrews and read, and you do not understand anything in there if you've not read the Old Testament. That's an essential part because here's what Hebrews tells us, that the, prophet, the prophets who spoke on behalf of God were pointing us toward Christ who was going to be the final word of God. It tells us that the nation of Israel, the people of God, pointed us towards Christ's kingdom under his eternal reign as we now exist. It tells us that the family of Abraham, the children of God, point us towards God, Christ's brothers and sisters, which are his church in the new covenant. It tells us that the wilderness wandering in the time of testing for Israel point us toward our journey as we're walking through this physical world, this wilderness we're in. It tells us that the promised land of Canaan, where Israel would find rest, points toward our eternal rest at the end of this earthly journey of wilderness wandering. It tells us that the Levitical priesthood, who were mediators for God, point toward Christ as our mediator of the new covenant. 
we find that Melchizedek, who was both priest and king, point us to Jesus, who was going to unite these two roles, which had never been united before, right? Kings came from Judah and priests came from Levi, and Jesus is going to put them together and make one sovereign authority that is over all. It tells us that the sacrificial system that required ongoing work point us toward the completed work of atonement that Christ completed once and for all. So Hebrews 11 completes these parallels by naming all the faithful of the New Testament who obeyed God or of the Old Testament who obeyed God. And so it was counted to them as righteousness, that shadow of righteousness. And though Christ hadn't come and completed his work in their day, God still commended them because of their faith and because they followed him. Hebrews eleven thirteen. all these people were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And if they could live lives of faithfulness to God, even though this great restoration that was still to come in Jesus Christ was only a mystery, just a shadow, just a signpost, just a sound that they couldn't truly identify, then we certainly can remain faithful to Him. The Hebrew writer says in 11, 2 and 3, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such oppression from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So this whole story, shadows, signpost, sounds, source, has eternal significance for us, immeasurable importance. And the only way that we can truly step into it and connect with it in the way that God needs us to because it's not just a spiritual discipline, it's not just checking off a box, but it is what woos us into actual love with Him. And the only way we're going to get that is to commit ourselves to reading the entire thing. Last night I led a workshop on discipleship for women, and it was more of a discussion that we kind of left open-ended and go, how do we disciple women? And I know there's some men in the room, but I'll say to the ladies, if you're looking for a way to do that, here's what I'd do. I'd find a lady and I'd say, let's read the Bible together. Let's just start at the beginning. It'll take you 15 minutes a day if we're going to do it in a year. And then every single day, you get together and you work on recognizing the character of God, the centrality of Christ, and the connections of the meta narrative. And I'll be doing some workshops on those specific things um, in the discipleship conference that starts later this evening. So this, this method of Bible study, dividing into four quarters, where we're recognizing the centrality of Christ all through it, um, if that's something you'd like to connect with, uh, I do have a book coming out next month where this is all lined out. It's a very big book. So uh, if you decide to get it and then go, that's double the word count of the real life theology book. If you know what I'm talking about, the big one that they have. Okay. But it's meant to be read over a year, right? It's five minutes of reading a day. And what it will help you do is make these connections um, over the course of a one-year chronological Bible study. And um, I'll put, you can text um, if you want to connect with this sis or step into scripture. <laughs> You can text SIS to 855-721-1400 and that will connect you uh, to the podcast that's associated with the book and also send you a text whenever the book becomes available on Amazon sometime around May the 19th. Thanks so much for joining us today. Again, I just invite you to check out Tina Wilson's podcast on our channel, Step Into Scripture. Her and Stacy walk through a lot of really hard questions, but really important questions in the Bible. And I know it's really been a great thing for me to listen through and hear their content and get questions answered that I've wondered in the Old Testament and New Testament alike. 